Welcome to Derailed Trains of Thought. Welcome back, everyone, to episode 11 of Derailed Trains of Thought. I am Timothy Deal, a.k.a. Dr. Adam Zayacek. And this is Nick Hayden, a.k.a. Mitch Mosier. And both of those characters we just mentioned are uh, from the Story Project, and which is now available as an ebook. By the time this podcast comes out, they might be available on barnesandnoble.com and uh, iBook. Pick it up. It was Tim and I and a, and a number of our friends got together and we made up all these kind of fake personas and then we wrote a series of journal entries to kind of tell the story of our lives together in this mansion. I think we've mentioned it here on the podcast a couple of times, but if you haven't been able to tell before, we're very proud of it, very pleased with the way it turned out. And it was basically written kind of when blogs were still pretty pretty big, so that was kind of the inspiration for it. It was kind of, it was kind of avant-garde. Okay, not really, but <laughs> it's very no, postmodern really. in the sense of uh, multiple narrative threads going. That's true. I, some inspiration from Lost in that, I would say. Yeah, not on, not on purpose, I don't think, at the time. No, I think, well, I remember, I think we talked probably more about, like, in The Muppet Show, more characters uh, running around doing all kinds of stuff. Uh, that's true. But anyways, pick it up. Um, it's also on smashwords.com if you go there. It's only one ninety nine for, like, you know, a full 300-page book. Granted, neither Nick and I are, are, have really invested much in ebooks, <laughs> but if you are, you will love it. Hey, though, on the site, there's also a link to where you can find the physical copy, which is $15. That's true, which is a, a bargain in my opinion. Yeah, no. it is it is for self for uh it is a bargain. I will stop talking now. <laughs> All right. I think that's enough uh self promotion for the time being. Um oh <laughs> quick quick uh update. Again, apologies that our regular podcast schedule has kind of been thrown off by my own uh school busyness. Unfortunately, that may continue to be the case until I graduate in May. So instead of this being a bi-monthly podcast, it's or bi-weekly mo- podcast, it's kind of turned into a monthly podcast. At least it's not bi-monthly yet. Yes, no, it's not <laughs> bi-monthly. Uh, as long as we keep it monthly, we should be okay. But yeah, so please be patient with us. We'll, we'll still be here. It just may take us a while sometimes. But with that said, let's move on to Story School. Okay, last episode we talked about heroes, and so today we want to bookend that a bit. We're going to talk about villains. Of course, a good antagonist can be a very important part of your story, but Nick, what what would you say is a primary role of a villain? Oh, primary role? Um, for me or in general? Just in general. I guess, to get, well, sometimes raise the stakes and give something worth... Uh have something the protagonist has to go against because you want the protagonist has to have obstacles and the easiest thing is throw some guy who hates his guts into the mix yeah it's probably the the force of conflict that's the easiest to come up with 
But that doesn't just because it's easy. Is they still have to be good characters, or they kind of again become one dimensional. And that's the thing too that villains are. Uh, well, we'll talk about this. Some you know villains can be. Uh, they can be fascinating. There, there's that we like to see things in terms of good and bad and of dark and light. And so if you have a hero, you very naturally want to see what kind of the antithesis of the hero is, and then see the working out of hopefully happy ending through the good guy winning. We talked about superheroes a lot last time, so just as a quick continuation of that, that's a good point you brought up about being the villain is often the antithesis of the hero. I think you see that a lot in superhero. I mean, Superman is really powerful and stuff, but Lex Luthor doesn't have any power, but relies solely on his brains. Now, Superman is no dummy, necessarily, but he Lex Luthor kind of represents a different side of... Of, of a person. He's all pride and arrogance, whereas Superman is all about protecting others. And I think that's the really good villains tend to be not just antithesis in the sense of I'm on the other side, but um, philosophical antithesis in many um, They have ways. reasons for doing what they do. Like, you know, the way I think we brought up before, but, um, you know, Joker and Batman, you got one who's kind of trying to make order and stop crime, and then the Joker who just, quote the movie, uh, likes to see things burn. That's very true. And then again, you know, I was reading recently that um, Nathan Fillion, he played a, a villain, I think, one time in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And he commented that Josh Whedon felt that a good villain doesn't necessarily think that he's doing something wrong. It, it, everything is entirely justified in his mind, which sometimes is what makes him all the more dangerous. Yeah, I think some of the most interesting villains are the ones who... Don't they're not the villains that go like, look how evil I am, aren't I awesome? But like, they're the villains who say I'm doing the right thing, or at least I have the right goals, and my my means are just different than what most people think is decent. Yeah. Well, let's talk. Let's talk a little bit more about motivations of them, because you, when we were talking about this, doing this episode, you came up with some interesting categories of villains that I think we should touch on. Okay. Yeah. These are just uh, categories like made up from my own kind of thinking, but I guess I had three types of villains. First, you have the pure evil. Basically, they don't need an explanation. They kind of enjoy it sometimes. The orcs from um, Lord of the Rings, you know, they're just, they just like to kill because they like to kill. Monsters fall into this category a lot, I think. Yes, monsters. You get, you get people, or sometimes the insane villains, the ones that, like, laugh because they take, like, intense pleasure out of other people's sufferings. Kefka from Final Fantasy VI was another example you mentioned. Yeah. I think Daleks could be, well... They could do the I, the next category, I think. Well, the, okay. the thing is, the, these categories overlap. Yeah. Um, we, yeah, we already had a couple of discussions about this. Um, so that's kind of the pure evil. They're just evil because they're evil, and there's no real explanation. Sometimes pulpy villains are like this. They're just, you know, they have the kind of the evil laugh, and they steal the Statue of Liberty just because it's cool. <laughs> witches, witches sometimes, or like Maleficent from Sleeping Beauty. Yes. Kingdom Hearts fame. Exactly. Then you have what I term the ideological evil. Basically, people who believe they're right. They're doing things because they have a goal that they think is good, not just for them, but also probably for other people. But it, it, it's against kind of our the viewer's culture or the reader's cultural norm. I threw in Bester from Battle 5. He's a psychop. Basically, all the good guys hate his guts, but he has a very structured way of thinking about his position in the world, that he has to keep all the other psychics safe, that normals are actually uh, 
inferior. Oh, Magneto is in the same category. Very much so. That they, they have a, a worldview that makes their way right and other people wrong. And I think it's, I'm just going to throw in here, Bester from Babylon 5 is a very unforgettable character. When I see Walter Croning, who played him, I don't see, I don't see Chekhov anymore, who plays Star Trek. I see Bester, and he kind of freaks me out. Yeah, he's a fabulous bad guy. And personally, I think some of the best bad guys are these ideological evil people, where they have a very distinct way of looking at the world that makes them evil, but they don't, they don't think of themselves as evil, per se. You've written a number of villains from this perspective. I think Makalos is kind of one of them from yeah. the Revolution, which was Makalos was a fascinating character because I, th- I think the Revolution, which was the serial story that Nick and I and some other people wrote, I think the Revolution had some of the first writing from you that I'd ever read, and honestly. Your depiction of a Macaulay really surprised me because, you know, when you first get to know Nick, he's this very <laughs> humble, soft-spoken kind of guy. And then he, he created this character that is like haughty and proud and kills people on a whim and just absolutely ruthless. And you would never think that that, that would come out of Nick's head. <laughs> yeah, people sometimes when they read my stuff, they're like, you wrote this? Because I have, yeah, I do stuff like that. I think it's the same reason that uh, the megalomaniacal version of Stuart Lim fascinated people so much. That I think that's probably true. But M- with Macalos, so the people can understand, his main... I like making villains that have a philosophical grounding, that they make sense. And Macalos was one of these guys where his whole philosophical grounding was that he was good at stuff. I mean, he was, he was, he was smart, he was powerful, he was always on top of things, and he figured... Whatever gets the job done is worth doing. If it's killing thousands of people, okay. If it's not, okay. He didn't he didn't care about killing, but he didn't mind killing if he had to to get whatever his uh, personal goals was were. Ability wise, he was extremely blessed. He had just he could do anything he wanted to, and he did it for his own purposes. As opposed, well, I'll, I'll tackle him later on another idea. Okay, there's there's a setup on it. Um, and I think Daleks would go in this ideological evil, possibly, or pure evil. They're, they kind of straddle. You know, they really kind of enjoy killing things, but that's also kind of their ideology. Mm-hmm. So the shadows from the Battle and Fire are kind of the same way. We talked about monsters being more just pure evil, but honestly, probably most Doctor Who monsters actually fall into this category. They usually have some reason for why they try to capture or incorporate people into their race because they're dying out or they think they assume that they're the best or something like that i i think that's where people tend to go with villains because it at least modern stories because that's where um they're more realistic and that does kind of tend to modern psychology too we're always trying to figure out people's motivations for why they do what they do mm-hmm. although that also psychology also kind of feeds into your next category that's true i have uh the third category is the tortured evil someone who does wrong because they can't find another way to do it and they want to be good, but they just can't quite make that decision, that last step. I'm full of uh, Battle and Five illusions today, but <laughs> James Michael Straczynski makes some great characters. Um, but Londo Malari from Battle and Five, if you've seen any of it, he starts off as very self-centered, very, here's the Centauri Republic, and he does whatever he needs for that. And He's actually kind of a comic relief character at the very beginning. That's true. And then the deeper he gets into these some of these uh, evil things, some of these you know, subjugating the Narns, the more he's like, I want out, but I don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And it makes a very tragic, tra- uh, tragic villain, tragic hero. I mean, he basically a hero by the end, but he has so many 
He's so committed much blood so on many his hands. Yeah, he's committed so many atrocities that J. Michael Straczynski didn't feel right to give him a happy ending, even though the audience feels for him. I mean, they hate what he did, but at the same time, I mean, it's hard not to like Alondo at some level. And you can tell that he wants to be different. Yeah, yeah. I think, since we didn't mention Lost last episode, <laughs> Benjamin Linus, I think it fits in this, at least by the end of the series. Yeah. He starts out kind of ideological evil, but by the end he's kind of like, okay, I realize I was wrong, but I don't know how to be any different. Yeah. Ben's arc is one of the most fascinating. I mean, there's a lot of great character arcs in Lost, but you would never think from his first introduction. I mean, he's pure. He's very, very evil when you first meet Ben. And who would think that by the last season you would feel such compassion for him? It was an amazing journey that they they dragged him through. And that is some um, modern psychology, too, that I think a lot of writers like to show, even for bad guys, show why they did it. Which, at worst, tends to push you to the place where they aren't responsible for their own crimes. Mm-hmm. Where you like, oh, they had the, you know, it's all, oh, they had bad parents, they had bad this, they had, of course they had to commit that crime. Um, yeah. At worst. But at best, it shows that we can have compassion for these people while not looking past what they actually did. That is a pretty fine line for, well, for us as Christian writers particularly. We talked a bit last time how somehow villains have become the the fans kind of, they become fan favorites somehow instead of the heroes. I think, well, in video game land, this is often the case. Well, with you got villains like Sephiroth, who has a huge fan following, even though he's pretty ruthless. And even other people like Kefka. Now, part of this is because they have awesome final boss songs. <laughs> That's all, in video game land, the final boss song counts for a lot. But in a sense, it is because you you say, well, they have reasons for doing this. That you know, which part of it is that modern psychology thing, but also I think part of it is seeing the good parts of them, like Macalos, for instance, as you pointed out. He has a lot of these good attributes. He's very intelligent. He's cunning. He's strong. He's very skilled in a lot of areas. He just uses them all in the wrong way. But at the same time, as much as you hate him from doing that, you do kind of admire his boldness in a sense. And I think that's something that draws a lot of respect from viewers. My theory is that a lot of people like bad people partly because of the power. Mm -hmm. I think because of the dramatic structure, villains are always imbued with tons of power. So they can seem overwhelming to the hero. And the hero is kind of always kind of the underdog or has certain obstacles to get through. Yeah. And so the hero sometimes comes off as a little more weak, a little more uh, unsure of himself. And the villain is just all confident and sure and knows what he wants. And if it's one of those shows that shows that there's stakes, really, he accomplishes some big feat with giant special effects. I think we all kind of admire and or covet that sort of you wish you could be so sure of yourself, so powerful, so cunning, so intelligent. Yeah. In a webcomic that I've mentioned on here before, Order of the Stick, there was a very interesting development not too long ago where Elon, one of the main characters who is, is a bard, and so he knows uh, narrative structure. Well, they had hinted a long time ago that his father was a dictator, that he was an evil warrior, and that he and his mother had split up for differences. Well... Elon met his father recently, and he was, in fact, a dictator. But like Elon, one thing that Elon shared with his father was 
a love and appreciation for dramaticness. This is a comic strip, so it's you know it's kind of played kind of silly like. But what was interesting is when there was kind of this conversation between the two of them where they found this out. Elon's father, his name's Tarquin. His justification for a lot of things was like, sure, yeah, in a lot of stories, the evil dictator gets overthrown. But what does that mean? That the evil dictator had, you know, how many years of power before some upstart overthrew him? And in between that bit of time, I'm just going to enjoy myself as much as I want. I mean, it sparked a lot of interesting discussion on, on the online discussion boards about, well, is he right? I mean, sure, he, he might get overthrown at some point, but what it almost seems that it's worth it for that very brief period of time. And in a world where people don't necessarily believe in an eternal judgment of any kind, that's that's a very potent question. No, exactly. I read that comic when you passed it along to me. I thought it was a very fascinating uh, concept. And I, I think you, you pinpoint the, the difference for Christian writers is that there's still judgment somewhere. And I think then how story writers often do is then, instead of having to wait till they die and, you know, having judgment then, is that that's why they give villains bad endings within the story. You know, why Londo can't get a happy ending. Because it wouldn't be just to give him a happy ending. Yeah. Even if it would feel better. This is why Ben doesn't get to go into the church with all the other lost characters. Because he had a lot of issues to work through. He had a lot of issues to work through. <laughs> But it, it does pose an interesting dilemma because we like to have villains to overthrow. So the villains, you know, for a time, basically have ruled the land. Mm-hmm. You know, the Empire in Star Wars, because I have to throw that in since we didn't talk about it last time, um, <laughs> ha- hangs out for you know, a good number of years. Mm-hmm. And it's more, and if the movies show us anything, it's more exciting to watch Han Solo and Luke Skywalker and Leia take down the Death Star than to watch a, Republic, a good Republic fall apart. Mm-hmm. And hence the love for the original trilogy often more than the prequels. I mean, there's other reasons, but yeah. I think that I, th- I honestly think that's one of the main reasons that we're inherently wired to see evil as kind of this thing that's pervasive and the good is something that has to fight to break out, mm-hmm. which I think is probably just because that's how the world is. That's true. In our current state, we're a fallen world, so evil is kind of the, the norm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, it's a limited perspective that we have i mean this world is so short in a sense but it seems like it often seems incorrectly that evil is the dominant power look at when jesus was on the earth and the romans were in charge and it's easy to see why people his followers even thought that he was here to overthrow them you know because that it seems like that's what god does i mean it is what he does but sometimes he doesn't always work in the ways that we expect him to. Yeah, which I guess as a writer, that's the interesting dilemma. Do you do you compress on a philosophical era, um, on a philosophical level? Do you compress kind of the acts and the judgment all into your story, which is kind of the the traditional way to do it? Bad guys end up dead or in jail. Good guys get the girl. Or do you leave this sort of uncertainty, or not uncertainty, but leave it open? just to faith, I guess. I don't know that every story has to fall by either. I mean, I think that's a choice you have to make about your story in general. We've talked before that art doesn't necessarily have to depict reality exactly as it is. Mm -hmm. And not to say that evil doesn't always get punished. I mean, 
Hitler got, you know, he got overthrown. He had to kill himself because he, he knew he was going to lose. And tyrants pass away. Their legend lives on for some time. But then again, think about how many tyrants and overlords from ancient times no one remembers anymore. Mm-hmm. In a sense, I think both versions can can be justified. Compressing it, like you said, into a into the traditional dramatic thing where the bad guy gets punished at the end or leaving it a little more open-ended and pondering. I think there's reason for both of those. I completely agree, and I think I brought it up largely for... I feel like these are issues that a writer should... A Christian writer especially should wrestle with. Mm-hmm. That actions should have consequences, or if they don't, there should be a reason you chose not to have consequences. It's kind of the moral universe idea we talked way back when, is that how you treat your villains and how you construct your heroes matters. It says something about your own beliefs. Yeah, and, and there's lots of ways to do it within, even within the Christian framework. It may not even wrestle so much on beliefs, in a sense, as much as your own questions and thoughts on a certain matter. Exactly. I mean, yeah, there's no easy answer to some of these things. I mean, half the prophets of the Old Testament were like, God... Why aren't you punishing all these evil people? And he's mm-hmm. like, well, just wait. And they're like, okay. Um, I mean, they were better than okay. but Right. Which brings me to talking about the kind of the moral implications of villains. And I, I like, I create what I think are some interesting villains. You know, I got Mikalos. Galleon from Strin Fred is, is one of these people who believes he wants to make the kingdom great. And the best way to make it great is through war because that's how you get all the technological advances and you make people work at their highest potential and very shadow thinking. Right. Another Babylon 5 reference. Sorry. I, uh, it's Babylon <laughs> 5 night today. It's um, funny. I was thinking the other day how much Babylon 5 influences my perspective or my perception of current politics. <laughs> Babylon 5 is basically a summary of uh, world history from World War uh, One on. I got like four shows that have highly influenced me in kind of my thing about writing and storytelling. Bell and Five is one of them. Yeah. Um, oh, definitely. But where was I going with that? Some oh, some complicated villains, and which I think is in you know because you can you can play with philosophical issues with your villains and make them interesting as opposed to being dumb. But what I wanted to I think what I started way back when is that having compassion for your villains can be a very interesting choice. That you feel sorry that they felt led to do what they were called to do, even if you don't condone it. Exactly. And it's it's rough sometimes to not condone it and also present them in a sympathetic light. Where I see this the most in, in Dostoevsky's novels. Dostoevsky, there we go. His novels are filled with wretched people, with drunkards and murderers and adulterers and wastrels. But you always feel like the writer or the narrator cares for them. Not that they, they're like that. But they're never written off as bad guys. They're just written off as sinful humans, which is very interesting because, I mean, there's some horrible people in these books. Mm-hmm. Um, not, I mean, Crime Punishment about Ross Konikoff, which is a guy who killed an old lady just to prove he could, basically, because he thought it would m- make him a beyond morals. And then he, he gets the whole book about him wrestling with the guilt and does he actually feel the guilt and the police are after him. And then there's... The hero in the book is this young lady who's a prostitute, and she's a prostitute basically to help pay for her family's food because her dad's a drunk um, and takes all the money. I mean, it's just, it's, it sounds horribly depressing, but it's not, <laughs> at least not for me. And so that, that kind of compassion, I mean, you have The Idiot, one of the books where the main character is kind of uh, Dostoevsky's idea of the comic saint. 
guy that everyone makes fun of but loves everyone and he's so innocent he's what they need to become good and by the end the idiot tries so hard to try to influence all these people he ends up going mad basically mm. but the whole book is like uh Dostoevsky saying please Russia wake up you know so you don't end up like all these people um so I'm rambling one more thing <laughs> um Raskolnikov actually is oh the whole book crime punishment is not a I read somewhere that Dostoevsky said it's not an indictment of the Russian youth but it's a basically a sorrowful song for him mm. saying unfortunately this is where they're going <laughs> I ramble a lot. You can cut some of that. <laughs> no, no. I mean, you make a good point because while I don't know how much, I'm not sure how much of it is villains per se, but it is important sometimes to have your complicated characters and showing that a person is not all one thing. I mean, a person can do some pretty wretched things, but at the end, I mean, they're still cr someone created by God. God knows who they are. They knows what they've done. And really our own sins are not, you know, Maybe we haven't done things that affect as many people as a villain does, but that doesn't mean that we're perfect either. Exactly. And I guess that was the Dostoevsky way is just one more way you can use, I guess, quote unquote, villains in a, in a new way besides, you know, you punish them or you don't punish them or where they're villains, but they're, they're almost, I mean, they act as the antagonist for the book, but they're not raised to that level of like, I'm an evil villain. Right, right. And also, as as we mentioned earlier, oftentimes what we admire in the villain is not necessarily their evilness. I mean, hopefully it shouldn't be. <laughs> but but it's often some aspect about them that's good that's been twisted in some way. And I think that's a very important point, that the difference between a hero and a villain is actually sometimes not that much. Mm -hmm. And if you're really clever, you can, you, can, you can flip the villain to a hero convincingly. Yeah. That was my hope with McCullough's. Evil doesn't have any admirable qualities in itself. It's in the is how they twist them into something wrong. Confidence in oneself is not necessarily a bad thing unless it's unless you put you know yourself in front of everything else. A person's confidence comes from from knowing why they were created, from from understanding that they're made in the image of God. It becomes twisted and bad when it becomes all about look how awesome I am. And the same can be said for courage, boldness, power. Like you said, people admire power. Well, God is a powerful being, so it's natural that we think that's something admirable. And, and like you said, having the villain more established at the beginning because we want to overcome him, that, again, that's something that we want to be established like that. Mm -hmm. So it's all, it's all a matter of evil twisting good attributes to wrong to a perverse version of it. Which, that a villain is just a hero twisted, both makes for compelling characters from a story level and also makes a lot of sense from a moral, spiritual level with what you do with them. Mm -hmm. And that might be uh, anything else, Tim? Um, no, I think we, that was a pretty good, pretty good discussion. I mean, you could talk about my, how I meant to make Macalos a hero. Oh, yeah, yeah, bring that up. Well, yeah, bring that up real quick, if you can summarize it real quick. No, I, I think you can. Macalos had a lot of, like Tim has mentioned, a lot of good qualities, and it was always my goal in the revolution, this story, to at some point break him. I love breaking characters. He was always focused inwards. They could break him and make him focus outward. All those things that made him such a good villain would then change and make him a fabulous hero. And the trick I always had was trying to do it convincingly, in a way that didn't seem cheesy or rushed. or was so, He had so much pride 
that I had to break it in a way that made sense and that he wouldn't then explain away in another prideful manner. Mm -hmm. But I think that's a really interesting. I've never done it with a, another character, I don't think. But it's a very interesting way to do it. One of these days, the revolution is going to be finished in some form, and we'll get to that. Because I don't think we had gotten even close to that point. No, I, I think I at one point had a, a plan for it, but I hadn't quite. I think it was going to be the, at the end of our second book it was going to happen. Yeah, I can't think of very m many villains that had that convincing of a turnaround. I mean, we talked about Ben and Londo, in a sense, as it falls under that. I'm not sure if I can think of anyone else. Offhand, I can. I'm sure there are. Where Raskolnikov in Grand Punishment takes 600 pages and he finally breaks. In the epilogue, it's interesting, he says, and then he started to make a recovery and basically become a Christian. But that's a whole other story, is basically what the epilogue said. <laughs> so it didn't even have time to get to the building it back up. It just got to the point where he actually realized what he did is, was wrong and admitted it. Which is actually the hardest part with these villains. To make a villain come to the point where they say, I was wrong. Hmm, yeah. It just occurred to me, in a sense, that's kind of uh, the story of Ebenezer Scrooge. That's true, exactly. That's exactly, I mean, and Dickens does a great job with it. Yeah, he had to have it basically scared out of him, but still, it's <laughs> still an effective way to do it. Well, and they brought the whole uh, judgment thing with the Ghost of Christmas future. Oh, so, yeah. You know, what was left of his life, the grave, where everything stops. Mm -hmm. What were the consequences of his actions, not just on on his own eternity, but on the lives of those left behind. Mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty good place to stop. Um, so take that as your challenge this time for all you writing, writers and filmmakers out there. See if you can develop a villain that you can make a complete turnaround. And Because uh, I, think, I think I'd really love to see some more of those. It, it makes for a fascinating story regardless. Yeah, definitely. With that said, I think we're ready to move on to our soundtrack. Well, again, as we mentioned earlier, with video game villains, the final boss battle music is usually the most exciting. I mean, you've been waiting your, through the entire game ready to really go beat up on this guy, and so the, you have to have a really epic song to go with it. And video games have not disappointed over time. Probably the most famous ones are, well, certainly the most famous song is most likely Sephiroth's song, One Winged Angel. They just play it at every video games concert you will ever go to. And for good reason. It's a, it's a great song. But today I thought I'd go with something a little less commonly heard, although not from an unfamiliar game. This song is Bowser's theme from the original Super Mario Brothers game. Pretty simple little Bentley, just only a few notes kind of repeated ad nauseum. <laughs> this remixer named Prism uh, took that and made quite a made a pretty exciting rock version of it, and I think you'll enjoy it. I, I noticed I picked a number of rock themes for my soundtracks recently, which I promise I'll get to another jazz one, but this was not the week to do it. But the name of this remix is Bowser is Pissed. Um, pardon my French, but that's just the title of the song. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, great guitar. I hope you enjoy.
right, we're back. Peace yeah, out. I really enjoy that song. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, good Make Bowser very, very evil sounding. Yeah. <laughs> you can imagine how. Uh, I almost imagine listening to a battle. It's a little more epic than like chopping down a bridge. But yeah, that's true. <laughs> All right. Next up, we're gonna do a real quick. Crackpot's Corner. This is where we talk about some crazy wild idea that may never happen, but it's fun to talk about anyway. Nick, I, I don't really have anything today, but you, <laughs> you said you had some idea. I, I might have some idea. I don't know how Crackpot is. Well, it's hard work, so I'll call it Crackpot. Okay. I've, lately, I've been wanting again to do an audio drama. Ah. I'm talking about reboots, actually. I've written, what, how many scripts was it? Three or four? Of a of an audio drama of the revolution, which we've talked about me rebooting. I've rebooted it several times: once in audio drama and once in uh, in normal prose. I th- I seriously think the audio drama has some potential there. I do, and the, why the crackpot's corner is because I wouldn't mind putting in the effort to edit it. Mm-hmm. Where I'm going to find reliable voice actors without? I mean, you can do it on the internet. There's a lot of places with like there's a voice actors alliance. That a lot of these free uh, audio dramas online get people, um, but I'm not. I'm not sure I'm ready to dedicate that much effort to finding official people and you know and taking the things and. Mm-hmm. But man, I think if you had if you had a a group of people like me and some other people who I could trust, I think it would make a really good independent radio drama. Now you had talked at one point about submitting the revolution to one of those. Radio drama groups. Are you not as sure about that anymore? Well, I did. I never heard anything back. Oh. And the hardest thing, I think, and I might have to try it again. I might have to dig it out now that I'm thinking about it and submit it again. The hardest thing is that people with ideas are a dime a dozen. People with the sound engineering experience are much more rare. Yeah. So the places, these groups online who do it, tend to be have more than enough ideas of their own, and they have people do the editing. That's true. They're not necessarily looking for new shows. Uh-huh. Now, some of them will, will look at submission. I mean, this is all people doing stuff in their free time. Right. One of these days, maybe I'll pull back up. I think I have three scripts. That sounds about right. Which were decent. I thought they were I thought they were pretty good. Yeah, I was excited to see where it could go. And then get, you know, maybe some other people on board for writing purposes, because... I'm not real fast yet writing audio dramas, and I didn't write such things so fast that sometimes it ends up short. Hmm. But yeah, finding some way to do that, I think, would be. I I constantly want to try new media, mediums, mediums. Uh-huh. I I want to write an interactive fiction one of these days. I want to do radio drama. I have a play that has like one act out of the five written. You've had a number of ideas for plays. I think you should try that more often. I, I really should try it more often. I have this old one that's more more dramatic. It's not a romantic comedy. Oh, that's surprising. Yeah, it's it's more dramatic. Um, I mean, it's humorous also. And so maybe, maybe it's overblown because I, I, I still have not quite pegged down live action and emotion well. Because like Strand and Fred, is, all my characters are a little exaggerated. Yeah. Which you can do in plays. I mean, you should do in plays. You should exaggerate, especially if it's a comedy. But you don't want to overplay certain things. And I, I, I don't have a good sense of it yet because I, I'm not an actor. I don't act often. I don't have a... When I'm writing prose, I have a good sense of how it will be taken, or at least how I would take it. Right. Um, but when as soon as things get read by other people... Could be a different matter. It could be a different matter, yeah. Because 
Well, unless I'm directed to and make him say it like I think it should be said, which I suppose <laughs> I could. But that's not really the way you're supposed to no, do it. No, no. You want to give them freedom. And now, sometimes I found in movies and stuff, people bring a lot more to it than I had originally. And I'm, I'm usually actually pretty loose on my on my lines because I've realized sometimes the lines look good on paper but don't sound good. I don't think I've written enough plays to get the perfect ear for sounding natural. I, th- I think I'm relatively natural, but I think, I, I think I'm still much more booky than, than realistic. When we did The Love Life of Wallace P. Fitzgerald, I remember the actress who played Susan had some a tricky time figuring out that one line. Something about trees and comparing a sequoia to, uh, to a maple or something like that. I realize sometimes when I read even my own stuff out loud that you have to say it just right for it to make any sense at all. Yeah. Yeah, that was and that was the case. We we worked about it for a while trying. At first, we had to decipher what you meant, which <laughs> I had a I had a feeling for it, but it wasn't immediately apparent. So, and plus, Susan is kind of an out there character anyway. It takes a little while to get into. I mean, knowing that the love life of Wallace P. Fitzgerald was basically our essentially sort of a reboot or remake of <laughs> ideas that we had used in the Taylor trilogy, or that yeah, it used. really was, yeah. Knowing that helped me as a director, but it, it took her it took her a little bit to get it. But I think I think the one that we were wound up using it, it makes enough sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that I think that is a weakness of mine. Partly, probably because I don't talk quite right, <laughs> <laughs> so all my characters talk a little off. I realize sometimes that I butcher the English language. You would think as a writer, I'd be like good at it, but sometimes I just hammer words that mean what I want them to mean, as opposed to what they usually mean. And, you know, they're wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. Yeah, exactly. They're wibbly-wimey, timey-wimey. <laughs> you know, talking about getting people together, just real quick, I'll mention, I guess I do have one crackpotty idea. And I remember, I think this was after I got my copy of season three of The Muppet Show. I was suddenly in the mood to do a variety show. Remember when we were brainstorming that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were doing we were going to do a variety show, and we had uh, what's my who, who's your murderer? The only, the only skit I yeah, the only skit I remember us actually hammering out very well was who's going to murder you? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where we came up with such a twisted yeah, idea. I had notes somewhere around here on my desk for a long time for how we were going to write. We had like your first grade teacher and your. <laughs> It was like it was like a dating show. Yeah, yeah. It was like you would hear their voices, and uh, they'd be like, they would say things that they had against you. Basically, I think Mr. Nelson will be will murder me. You are incorrect. <laughs> and then, like the end, would be the guy getting chased around stage by some crazy person with an axe <laughs> or something. Well, the very cheerful announcer would blather on. <laughs> it was going to be great. <laughs> Again, though, trying to pull some—you actually would need to get actors on hand to do stuff like that. <laughs> I know that's we need we need a creative co-op when you get back here. Yeah, I know, I know, or wherever I wind up. Yeah, that's true. You might end up somewhere else. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. But that, yeah, something like that would be awesome. Well, the nice thing with voice acting as opposed to variety show, they can tape them over the intranets. Yes, kind of like us. Yeah, exactly. Now it's time to wrap things up. Again, a little shorter episode, again, for purposes of time, but hopefully after graduation we'll uh, be able to pick up another, uh, do another Our Take on Tales. It's been a while since we've done one of those, but in the meantime, let's talk real quick about the contact info, Nick. Uh, Yes, you can get a hold of us, or visit our website at derailedtrainsofthought.blogspot.com. Leave us comments. We love comments. We live on comments. 
Um, <laughs> and it don't have to be all positive. I mean, we will gladly accept your praises. But if there's something that you think that we could do better, let us know. We want to be improving those podcasts um, as much as is reasonably reasonably possible. Exactly. And don't forget, you can also email us at derailedtrains at gmail.com. You can get a hold of us on Facebook if you feel like talking to us personally. If you really want to. If you really want to. Yeah, we, you know, if you want to stalk us or something. And then, yeah, that'd be cool. We're, we're both on Facebook, <laughs> just under our names. <laughs> All right. Now, keep, you bet. You... Okay, here we go. So for my soundtrack, I, I was tempted to go with some of the highlights, like Tim mentioned, Final Fantasy. And then I also almost went with some more jazzy stuff, but I just couldn't pass up some sort of hardcore rock insanity. Since last time I picked a hero song from Heroes and Villains, the album that OC Remix released, I thought this time I would pick a villain song from that same album. There are a lot of good ones, but I decided to pick a song from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 4, Turtles in Time. This is the theme from the last level, so it's basically Shredder's theme. It's called Enter the Shredder. It's remixed by Danimal Cannon, and it's just insane. So we thought we'd uh, leave you with that for the day. Yeah, if you didn't like the hard rock ending for Bowser is Pissed, you probably won't like the song either, just as a word of warning. (laughs) (laughs) But if you did, you're going to love this. So uh, with that, this has been Nick. And this is Tim. Adios. Later. Bye.